Thank you, Pastor Bruce and Athena, for your example. We can see a lot through our, our words, but what really teaches is examples, and you two have been a great example uh, to Jerry and I and to the body of Christ here. I want to thank my wife, Jerry, for her graciousness in my life. Um, she is my best friend. I want to thank my beautiful daughters and their families for being here today. Uh, I have a son in Little Rock, and I talked to him before. Um, and I'm going to address that, but um, somebody might be asking, what is an executive pastor? And what I'm going to uh, convey to you is a conversation between Pastor Barry and an individual who moved away from this church. Uh, they moved to Park Rapids, and he was talking to Pastor Barry that uh, they have three pastors. Is that right? At Park Rapids? Yeah. They're, they have a senior pastor. They have a youth pastor. And this guy was saying... Then they have another pastor in the middle. I don't know what he does. <laughs> if you want further information, you can email me at idontknow.com. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, as I was thinking about my, my children, uh, you know, you carry the loved ones. You carry loved ones in your heart. And I was reminded of one of the scenes, uh, one of the greatest philosophers of our time, Forrest Gump. <laughs> um, there's a scene where he is sitting next to the bed where his wife is sick and she's dying. And he's describing his, um, his run from coast to coast. He ran from coast to coast and he saw all the, he had a number of experiences, he saw some beautiful scenery and one of the th scenes that he's describing is um, a scene where he's running in the mountains and he, and he looks off to his left and he sees a mountain lake. And then he sees this blue sky. And he tells his wife, he says, you know, I couldn't tell where the lake ended and the sky began. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's an awesome sight. It's kind of like looking at the ocean. And you kind of wonder, well, where's the ocean end and where does the sky begin? And then his wife looks at him and she says, I wish I had been there with you. And he looks at her with this emphatic look and he says, you were there. You see, we carry loved ones in our heart. More importantly, God, our Father, carries his children in his heart. That's an awesome thought, that the Father of our universe carries each of us in his heart. Let me pray. Father, I, I thank you for your grace in my life. I'm, I'm asking grace for this message. Lord, uh, I am nothing and you are everything. And I pray that Jesus Christ today, that you would be glorified. I pray that your word will be magnified. And Lord, I don't want to remain the same. Lord, I want to become like you. And God, I thank you that's your desire that each of us, for each of us, that you desire for us to become like you. 
And so, God, that's why I'm asking for grace, because your grace is sufficient. Because, Lord, in the time that I've been thinking about this, I know I've fallen short quite often. But, Lord, I thank you that you give us grace and you give us the Holy Spirit to do your will and to become like you. I pray, God, your blessing in each person here. Lord, help us to change and become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if there is a title... Uh, for today's message. It's called the Esau Syndrome. And <clears throat> I'm just going to talk very briefly just as a, a foundation in terms of understanding of who Esau is. Um, there was Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. Esau, who was the firstborn, and Jacob came out right after Esau holding on to his heel. And that's why Jacob was given the name supplanter because that's what Jacob means, because he's holding on to his uh, older brother's heel. And Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah uh, loved Jacob. And as they grew up, uh, Esau became a hunter of game. And this found favor in the sight of his father Isaac, who loved wild game. And there was a day that Esau came in from the field and Jacob had been cooking stew. And Esau said, can I have some of that stew? And Jacob said, not unless you sell me your birthright. The birthright in that culture is very important because the firstborn typically got the blessing. And that blessing really was from the Lord. But Esau said, what good is my birthright if I'm famished and starving? So he sold Jacob his birthright for a bowl of stew. And later on, as Isaac, the father, was getting older, his eyesight became dim. And he knew that he was approaching death. So he said to Esau, go get me some game, cook it, and serve it, and then I will bless you with the firstborn's blessing. And Rebekah, who loved Jacob, overheard the conversation and uh, got together with Jacob and had a strategy to deceive Isaac into believing that Jacob was Esau. And um, again, his eyesight, Isaac's eyesight was dim. So Jacob comes in there with Esau's furry coat and a meal and at first, Isaac was suspicious, but um, Jacob was able to convince him that he was Esau. So Isaac, after he was done eating, gave him the firstborn's blessing. If you look in the chapter, it's, it's an awesome blessing. And later on, uh, Esau comes in and finds out that Isaac had already given his younger brother the firstborn's blessing. And he was distraught. Now, Isaac, it says, shook violently because he knew the importance of the firstborn's blessing. And, he, and, and Esau says, can't you give me another blessing? Well, not like the one he gave Jacob. Once it's done, it's done. And the blessing he got doesn't compare it at all to the one that Jacob received. Esau said that Jacob supplanted him two times, his birthright and his blessing. 
But what Esau didn't recognize is that the two were related. The fact that he sold his birthright is the real reason why he didn't get the firstborn's blessing. How important is God's best? Well, look at the lineage. Look at the, it's, 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 it's not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's because of some choices that were made that Jacob got the best. And of course, out of that lineage comes Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, it says, work at getting along with each other and with God. Now, we think a lot about getting along with one another. But my question is, is how well are you and I getting along with God? God is a person. He has feelings. Otherwise, this is the, it's still in Hebrews, otherwise you'll never get so much a glimpse of God. Make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. Keep a sharp eye out for weeds of bitter discontent. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. In the New, that's the message translation in the New American Standard that says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. This event with Esau may not seem to be relevant to you and me, but it must be pretty important. Otherwise, the writer of Hebrews wouldn't have mentioned it, and he mentioned it in the book that deals with God disciplining his people. Oswald Chambers says that um, very few of us will debate about what is filthy, evil, and wrong. But we will debate about what is good because we have different perceptions about what is good. And that is why there are marital conflicts, conflicts at work, and society in the church. My moral judgment is the one I defend. And the more moral I believe I, I am, the more opposed I can become to Jesus. We, for, we forfeit God's best often to hold on to what we think is good. The good we settle for may satisfy, satisfy our emotional, intellectual, or maybe our spiritual appetite short-term, but we'll miss out on God's best. Esau forfeited his father's blessing because of a short-term appetite. We can forfeit God's blessing if we settle for what we judge as good versus God's best. And what God's best requires is that we surrender to him. In Luke 9, it says that, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I'm going to speak about two reasons. There are probably more why we forfeit God's best and we settle for what we think is good. And one of the main things that God has been dealing uh, with me on is who's in control. Psalms 31:15 says, my times are in his hand. I'm constantly challenged by this question in my circumstances. It could be my family relations, it could be my job, my finances and church. I can get it settled in one area, and then I'm challenged in another area. A test comes along in another area of my life. 
And this includes what some call the 1090 rule, where 10% of life is what happens to you and me, and the other 90% is how we respond to it. And our response will be determined by what or who we believe is in control. In the 90s, when this church and others were having conflict, there was a perception that others had to change before anything good or God's will would be done. I was reading John 15, 7, where it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. God gave me a revelation out of that scripture, that no one can take me out of his will except myself. You cannot take me out of God's will. No circumstance can take me out of God's will. A couple weeks later, Jerry and I went to um, uh, Virginia Beach and at Regents University, CBN, and there were two speakers there. One was John Bevere, and the other one was Dr. Kingsley Fletcher. And as Dr. Kingsley Fletcher was speaking, he stopped, uh, and he said, I want you to know something, that no one can take you out of God's will except yourself. See, that was a revelation to me. It's like God was saying to me, this is true, that no one can take me out of God's will except myself. You know, when, when, when Jesus went to the cross, a lot of his disciples thought that the reason he came wasn't fulfilled because they were looking at it from a different perspective. They thought that he was going to be the king that delivered Israel from the control of the Romans. But he came for a different purpose. There's, there's a point here that we look at a circumstance and we see it one way, but God has a different perspective on our circumstances. The standard that we need to follow is his word. In uh, John 8, it says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We perhaps can get what appears to be good by fighting or struggling in our circumstances and in essence surrendering to our circumstances. Or we can surrender to God and get what is best like peace, joy, and his will. We need to settle not only in our mind but our heart. Who's in control? Is God sovereign or is he not sovereign? Is his word true or is it not true? Are we abiding and doing his word we can choose to abide in our circumstance or abide in his word. One choice will rob us of peace, joy, and his will, and the other choice will give us those three things. The criteria that I've learned to use is, number one, peace. The scripture says that peace is the umpire in your heart. When I don't have peace, I know that something's not right. The other thing that I've tried to do by God's grace, is to be right with him and to be right with other people. It's not that I'm always going to agree with other people. That doesn't mean that you're right. It's my attitude towards other people. If we truly believe that God is in control, we will be less apt to try to change our circumstances when we have a bad attitude or perceptions that are colored by bias, prejudices, selfish motives, or hurts. And quite often, we make decisions when we're hurting. And that's probably not a good time to do that, especially if we're making it because of our feelings. 
making decisions that may satisfy for the short term, but in essence circumvent God's will. If a circumstance is not changing or is immovable, maybe God is trying to say something, like he's in control. We always look at the pain and say, God, change the pain. God said, no, I want to change something in you. I'm not saying the circumstance is always going to change, but there's something that he wants done in you and me. And that's why the circumstance, a reason, a circumstance will not change. The protection that God has given us in emotional difficult times is his word. The word will show me if I have a godless bad attitude or a godly attitude. Will we allow our circumstance to control us or surrender to God and his will? And whatever we surrender to controls us. Whatever we surrender to controls us. If, you've, you, if you walked in this earth, you're, gonna, you're going to be the recipient of some form of injustice. And uh, some time ago, I had been in a prolonged period, I'm just going to make a point here, I'm not going to the specifics, of injustice. And one day I sat down with Jerry and said, Jerry, let's pray about this. And so I asked God to deliver me. And the way he delivers you is not the way you think he's going to deliver you. Because the word that came to mind right away is vengeance. Vengeance. We all like to see vengeance, don't we? That's human nature. But of course, I knew where that came from. That comes out of Romans 12, where Jesus is saying... Vengeance is mine, meaning if I'm going to judge somebody, I'll do it. That's none of your business. And then he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't let let yourself become, uh, to, to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And when I made that decision, I told Jerry, I'm going to do that. Peace came back to my heart. I, I, I thought, you know what? It can be so subtle. I didn't realize that peace had left my heart. But peace came back to me. We need to get it settled in our hearts who's in control because that will determine how we look at a circumstance. God is in control. And the other part that the Lord really worked on me during this time, you see, I was supposed to give this message back in February, so he gave me enough time to think about it a lot to see how far I fall short of this. I need his grace for this. But the part that really got to me was his point about hindered prayer. I'm not so sure our prayers are that effective. And of course, the first scripture came back, which applies to me, is 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, you husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Now, I want to get something real straight here. If you think a woman is a weaker vessel, you haven't walked on this earth long enough. That is not what the writer is saying here. What he's saying is you need to have compassion on your spouse. You really need to have compassion on other people. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do we treat our wives as a joint heir? And the the part that that I see quite often is where the man will make a financial decision without the agreement of the wife. You know what? If you're married and you believe in Jesus Christ and peace is the umpire in your heart, you as a a man, you can go after something because that's what you want. But the safeguard that God gives is you both have peace in your heart about that decision. It's a safeguard. 
And sometimes we don't honor our wives when we make those decisions. By the same token, the Bible says concerning women that you need to respect your husbands. And I've been around long enough to see where sarcasm or whatever is used on the husband. Now, men sort of have hard heads, and maybe they don't get it. But I want you to know something. He gets it. And that isn't the point about whether your husband gets it. It's what he gets. Um, there's a book that Chad Stendhal, he's a missionary to Columbia, wrote titled, Are Millions of Christians Really Safe? He says we should keep a short account with God, meaning that we are to repent of disobedience as soon as possible. It isn't that you and I are not going to sin. That's a given. It's what we do with it that's important to God. Many years ago, I was processing a deep hurt and dealing with unforgiveness. Now, again, if you've been in the world long enough, you're going to deal with deep hurts. I was a relatively new Christian, and I was trying to process this and I read in Hebrews 6, where after Jesus talks to the apostles as to how to pray the Lord's Prayer, he says, unless you forgive, your Father who is in heaven is not going to forgive you. And what dawned on me is that if I would die and the Father has not forgiven me because I didn't forgive, where does that put my soul? That's a very serious matter. And sometimes when you have deep hurts, it takes a processing it's a daily decision to say, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. But the other thing that got to me is I had children. And I thought, you know what? If I don't process this correctly, I'm going to become a stumbling block to them. That's a very serious matter. And now that I've got grandkids, it could have been a domino effect. Sin not only hinders prayer, it affects others. I, we need to keep a short account. I have a friend who said a long time ago that sin is expensive. It is expensive, especially if you don't deal with it. Um, as I was preparing this message back in February, I was reading uh, out of my devotional, Oswald Chambers, and the title is, am, am I My Brother's Keeper? And he says, Has it ever dawned on you that you are responsible spiritually to God for other people? For instance, if I allow any turning away from God in my private life, everyone around me suffers. And he uses a number of scriptures. One of them is out of Corinthians. It says, with, if one member suffers, they all suffer. If you allow physical selfishness, mental carelessness, moral insensitivity, or spiritual weakness, everyone in contact with you will suffer. But you ask, who is sufficient for these things? He is sufficient in his grace. We all fall short but we need to be obedient to his word. If we don't respond to conviction as soon as possible, we close the door to heaven and we open up the gates of hell. I have enough trouble in my life because we live in a fallen world. I don't need to ask for more trouble in my life. And if we remain in sin, we give the enemy an opportunity to wreak havoc or to raise hell in our life. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There's two things that are said in this, script, in this scripture. God honors transparency. And the reason I believe that he does is because it demonstrates humility and a trust in God and not ourselves. 
I'm not saying that you need to tell everybody about your sin, but you need to be accountable. We all need to be accountable to somebody. And I'm not talking about going to somebody and complaining. I'm talking about coming to them and with a humble attitude, say, you know, what do you think about what's happened here? Do you think this is wrong? And that brother or that sister needs to tell you the truth from, from their perspective. One of Satan's strategies is to isolate people to try to get people to hide their sin and make them think that no one else has ever had that problem. We all have the similar problems. And it's good to go to church, but that's not good enough because there's a lot of isolated people in church. We need to find people who we can be accountable to and be honest with. I'm not an expert on revivals, What I mean by that is where God in his sovereignty comes in the power of his Holy Spirit and he moves upon people and they turn their lives to the Lord. But one thing I do understand about them is prior to that, there are people who are repenting. There are people who are confessing their sins to one another. And I'm not talking about blabbing it to the whole congregation. I'm talking about somebody you can find, more than one, that you you trust. The other part of that is what is effective prayer? It's having a clean heart and a clean conscience, but probably more importantly, it's walking in his love. I don't believe that you or I have any spiritual authority at all. It's marginalized or it's limited if we're not walking in love. In in 1 John chapter 4, it says that Jesus Christ came that we would live through him. And then it says we've come to know, come to know and believe in his love. Have you come to know and believe in his love? And it says that God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So if we're not abiding in love, we're not abiding in God. And if we're not abiding in God, he's not abiding in us, in a sense, and we don't have spiritual authority. So where does that put our prayer life? Having effective prayer is not hiding behind Scripture. I've done that. We are so good when we have a problem of finding a scripture that fits our situation. And it it gives us a sense of comfort and consolation. But it's not necessarily from God. Like I said, if you've been around long enough, you will experience some form of injustice. And what I did at one time is I I took a scripture out of Proverbs that says that many seek their ruler's favor for justice, but justice comes from the God. He said, yeah. What does that mean? It doesn't really mean a whole lot because I don't really understand what God is doing to me in that circumstance. Jesus said this. He only did what he saw the Father doing. Isn't that our example? Now, when I came to know the Lord, it's because of my marital problem. I thought my wife was leaving me. I felt all alone. It didn't make any difference who was around me. In retrospect, I look at that being all alone was God. He, he was making sure that no one was going to interfere with what he was doing in my life. But you know, when you're going through that circumstance, what you look at is the pain. And, you know, I was hoping that, that God would somehow or another change Jerry. And every time I thought about that, he would kind of like pull me aside and say, no, I'm talking to you. What happens a lot of times is we interfere with what God wants to do in the circumstance, and in my case, my spouse. We can interfere with that. Sometimes, 
And this didn't happen. In, 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 I was the one in the pit, but sometimes God will put somebody in a pit, and what we do, because we're so concerned about them, is pull them out. And God said, don't do that. I put them in the pit. Because as humans, where do we, we respond when we're in the pit, when we're going through some difficult times? Oswald Chambers says that someday somebody may come up to you and say, you thief, you stole from me what the Lord was trying to do in my life. You prayed against the Lord's will, and you interfered with what God was trying to do in my life. Oswald Chambers says that sometimes we ought to pray that there's no power on earth that will steal what God is trying to do in that person's life. And sometimes, he says, you have to pay ten, uh, pray ten times harder that the circumstance will get worse, because that's just human nature. We don't know how low our pit is sometimes. In Mark 8, 23, this is, this is where Jesus is taking a blind man out of a village. And I love this. He sets him up. I was going to demonstrate this, but I'm not very good at it. And he spits in the guy's eyes. Now, Jesus was a son of man and son of God, but I think what he did is he took a wad and he split it and it got him right in the pupils. <laughs> you tell me what the logic is about Jesus Christ spitting in somebody's eyes. How, is that human logic? How about when the, the ten lepers came to him? He didn't say, I'm going to heal you. You know what he said? He said, turn around and go show yourself to the priest. What's the logic in that? The log, there's no logic. It's faith. Jesus is looking for people to trust him in their physical, emotional experiences. It's faith that moves things. It's faith that moves God's heart. And Jesus asked the blind man after he spit and spit in his eyes. He says, do you see anything? He says, yeah, I, I, I see men, but they're walking like trees. I was thinking, you know, if you had spit in your eyes, what would you see? <laughs> Jesus has a great sense of humor. I really believe he does. And quite frankly, that wasn't his idea anyway. It was the Father's because he only did what the Father was doing. Obedience brings clarity. Paul, the Apostle Paul, said we ought to walk by faith, not by sight. As human beings, we look at the circumstance, we look at the pain, and that's what we're looking at. God's saying, walk by faith. Don't lean on your own understanding. When I was going through my difficulty in my marriage, some people will be drawn into the Gospels. God drew me into the Proverbs because I needed to know how to respond. But, of course, the, the Scripture that many people look at is out of Proverbs 3 where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not onto your own understanding. When we're in pain, we lean onto our own understanding. God says, Don't do that. I'm in control. Obedience brings clarity. The scripture says that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. When you obey God, it becomes more clear. It may not make sense in the beginning. It may not make sense that he's asking you to pray a certain word, but he knows. It may not seem connected to the pain, but he knows. By the same token, disobedience brings confusion. I shared with you in a previous message that a number of years ago, uh, somebody asked me, how I was doing. I said, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, about 8 or 9, and immediately somebody else said, you're delusional. I will tell you, 
that most of you are delusional, some more than others. And the longer that you've been a Christian, the more susceptible you are to being delusional. And I'll tell you why. Out of James 1.22, it says, Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Delude means you're being deceived because you're not doing the word. And it's just not sitting in the pews and listening to the truth and then going out and not doing it. It's when God's speaking to you through your circumstances, when he's speaking to you through another person, when you are praying, when you're reading the word and God is speaking to you, and then you don't do it. I'm guilty of that. So we all can be delusional. You know, God wants us to understand who's in control. He wants us to have effective prayers. He really does. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to come to know him. And he has remedies. I'm going to talk about two of them. One is discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 says that he disciplines those whom he loves. God disciplines us so we work righteousness, but also to get him to listen. Now, as a parent, when you discipline your kids, ultimately, the reason is that you want them to listen to you. It's no different with the Father. He wants us to listen to him. And if you can't hear his voice, ask him at what point were you disobedient so he can draw you back to that point and you can deal with it. Because many people don't hear his voice because there's disobedience in their life. Or maybe we're just not listening. If you want to become familiar with somebody's voice, you've got to spend time with that person. Then you can hear his voice. God speaks in many different ways. He uses scripture. He uses other people. He uses our conscience. But most of all, he speaks in the language that you and I, and I understand best, and that's our circumstances. That's how I hear his voice, especially when I'm going through some deep stuff. And when I'm up here speaking... It's because he's been speaking to me out of my circumstances or through my circumstances. And that's the area that he typically speaks to people. Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 indicates that there are three ways that God will discipline us. And the first is reproof. Proverbs 12, 1 says that he who loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates Reproof is stupid. I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you hate reproof? Good. Put your hand up. (laughs) Webster says that reproof is a gentle correction to a fault. You know, as a parent, you typically will give a verbal reproof or warning. Same with the Father. He'll speak to us through our conscience, Scripture, or another person. But, you know, just like a parent, if we don't respond to the reproof, he uses, according to Scripture, something that's more restrictive called chastening. This could be felt as emotional anxiety, frustration, or distress. Pressure can increase at work, at home, in your health or finances. Can you relate to that? When I've done something wrong, I don't have peace, and I have a hard time concentrating especially if I've delayed the repentance. 
If you fail to read these signs, you can feel unfulfilled at church, critical of other Christians, and you don't feel you're in touch with God and you're not getting much out of the Bible when you read it. Um, I got that information of The Secrets of the Vine by Bruce Wilkinson. It's a great book. It has to do with God's discipline and his pruning. Now, if we don't respond to his chastening, he'll scourge us. And this is typically when we're in open rebellion or prolonged sin, and it causes pain in our life. C.S. Lewis said that God will whisper through pleasure, but he'll shout to each of us through pain. God wants us to be fruitful, and he will use these types of discipline because he loves us. And if you're asking the question, who is disciplined? All his children are disciplined. That's what the word said. None of us escape that. I had a dream about a friend who had a, a bad attitude a number of years ago toward church and people. And I typically don't tell the people about my dreams. Some of them are pretty funny, but this one I really felt was from the Lord. And, and I, I bounced it off a couple of other people, and then I met with this person. And the dream was this. I saw a shelf, and this person's name came to, came to mind. I saw a shelf that had a lot of dust on it. But there had been a spot where obviously somebody had been sitting, and that space was clear. And I told him, I said, I believe what the interpretation is, is God's going to put you on the shelf because of your bad attitude. And thus indicates that you're going to sit there a while. But God is a redeemer, and you will get back up again. About seven years later at a funeral, he comes up to me. This person comes up to me, and he and, um, says his attitude was wrong. The sin was confessed. I didn't bring it up. He brought it up. I know today that this person has a very, very fruitful ministry. So God will discipline us because he wants us to become more like his son. He wants the best in us. Not just good, the best. But there's another way that he'll get our attention. It's called sifting. That's the, this is the get the best, God's best in us, and a ministry. Now, scene is the last supper. This is the night that Jesus would be praying in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he, be, he would be saying to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then ultimately the crucifixion. But the scene is the Last Supper, and the apostles are arguing amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. And Jesus responds by telling them that they ought to be a servant as he was a servant. And then he stops, and he looks at Simon, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, if Jesus calls your name twice, you think it's an important message. He wants to get Simon's attention. And I believe what Jesus said to Simon is very important to you and me in the church right now. If Satan asked Jesus' permission to sift Simon, who's in control? 
If Satan, when he went before God's throne about Job to ask permission to harass Job, who's in control? The enemy is not in control and neither are your circumstances. God is in control. Can the enemy ask Jesus permission to sift you and me and the church today? Of course he can. He's alive. You know, when I was born again, when I asked Jesus Christ into my heart and I said, Jesus, if you're real, come into my life. Not only did he reveal that he was real, but Satan was real. He gave me an understanding that both he and Satan are real. And he is alive today. The word said that the word says that these are given for example. The word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if, if Satan demanded permission to sift Peter, he can, sift, he can ask per, uh, permission to sift you and me as well. And personal sifting will show us who or what we believe and agree with. And it will show what needs to be sifted out of our lives. Peter fell because of pride and fear. He denied Jesus Christ to two maid servants. Obviously, fear was working in that scenario. Some people fall because of critical attitudes, lust, greed, self-pity, envy, jealousy, go on and on and on and on. The sifting will, allow, will also show who we really believe is in control. When this church had a sifting in the mid-90s, I remember a mental picture of demonic talking where people were accusing one another, criticizing one another, and picking up each other's offenses. The thing about picking up other people's offenses is kind of funny in a way because the person who was initially offended by whomever has been reconciled with that person, and the other person who decided to share that offense still has the offense. If you haven't had the revelation, you will, that the battle takes place in the mind. There are voices that you listen to. Your own voice, God's voice, and the enemy's voice. And who we agree with is going to determine what we think and what we do. I went to a prophetic conference in St. Louis with my friend Doug a number of years ago to listen to a, a prophet speaker, Graham Cook. He said that God will allow division in a church to show who is inspired by God and who has a wrong or personal agenda. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. The Message Bible says, first, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring forth the truth into the open and confirm it. See, God will ultimately have his way. He will build his church, and his truth will come forth. The question is, will the truth come through you and me? His word will be magnified. Peter fell, and we can fall, but his faith was not destroyed. That is why individual and corporate prayer is important, so that people's faith will not fail. Does our hindered prayer or lack of prayer contribute to people's faith failing? I'll answer that. Luke 21, 36, Jesus says, But keep on the alert at all times, praying 
in order that you may have strength to escape or get through all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling a story of a widow who went to an unrighteous judge for legal protection. And initially, the, the unrighteous judge would not provide the legal protection. But because of her persistence in, in coming to him, he finally gave it. And then Jesus says, how much more will God bring justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? But here's what he says in the end of that story. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus was interconnecting faith and prayer. The importance of faith in other people's life as we pray for ourselves and other people. It's important that we pray for other people that their faith will not fail. Peter is actually warned more than once by the Lord by his impending falling that he would deny Jesus. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, with James and John, Jesus came to him a couple times and said, you, you, you need to be praying so that you do not enter into temptation. And then he comes to him, he says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spiritually, we can be sleeping. And when, we, we, when that happens, we can fall into trials and temptations that God didn't intend us to fall into. I have two friends, in the same day, at different times of the day, separate circumstances, they both tell me that if you're intimate with Jesus, you can get through trials. Peter was intimate with Jesus. He was part of the elite three. He was with James and John, and those three saw things that the other nine didn't as far as apostles. For example, the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John. And this is where they saw Jesus being transfigured and also saw him speaking to Elijah and Moses. And they were also there when the bright cloud comes over and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So they were intimate with Jesus, but Peter fell. Jesus said this. He says, I pray for you that your faith may not fail. If Jesus prayed that his faith, it's not that it failed, he fell. But that wasn't, you know, his faith wasn't totally destroyed. Faith is critical to staying with God and abiding in his will. Faith is an indication as to who we believe is in control. Very briefly, I'm going to tell you the story about Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah. And during his reign, there were two nations that were much larger that were coming against Judah. One of them happened to be Israel. Israel was a wicked nation at that time. And he was very fearful, and the people were fearful, but God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, don't, don't be fearful. These two nations are but smoldering logs. I mean, their fire is just about out. They're smoldering. And that's another example of what, when we're in a tough situation, we have a perspective, but God has a different perspective. He says, don't be fearful of them. He's going to be okay. And then he speaks through Isaiah one more time and says this. In one translation, it says, if you don't stand in faith, you won't stand at all. That word is true for you and me today. If we don't stand in faith, we won't stand at all. We need to walk by faith, not by sight. Peter fell, but God redeemed and restored him. Jesus again said, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
The restoration process is where uh, Jesus has Peter all alone, and he says, Peter, do you love me? The love that Jesus is talking about is agape love, which means your will. And Peter would say, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. But he came back with a filio love, which means feelings. I have great feelings for you, Lord. Jesus asked him again, do you love me, Peter? Talking about your will. Peter came back, you, you know all things. And he responded with, yeah, I have great feelings for you. But what Jesus was after in that restoration was, I want to capture your will. It's your will. It's like a marriage. In a marriage, your feelings will go one way or the other. You cannot go by feelings. We need to go by our will and our commitment. And Jesus is looking at capturing our will. That's why Jesus, when he was teaching the apostles about how to pray, said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not mine, not my feelings, but your will. Is Jesus our first love? He loves us, but guess what? You and I sometimes are not very lovable because we got stains in our character. If we were that lovable, he wouldn't need to discipline us. He's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. And then, as I said earlier in my message, are we getting along with God? In our circumstances, are we making him glad? Are we satisfying him? That's an act of faith. That's what moves his heart. He will discipline and sift us to make us lovable. If we learn and grow from the sifting, God will use us to strengthen others. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. He was capturing Peter's will, and he wants to capture your will and my will to send us where he wants us to go. So I have a mission for you. Church, I have a mission for you. If our faith doesn't fail, the sifting will separate our pride, self-promotion, agendas, and junk from what is valuable. And what is valuable is Jesus in you and Jesus in me. His word in you, his word in me. His glory upon you and his glory upon me. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 out of the Message Bible says, Friends, friends. When life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Now, you may agree with that, but you know, when we go through difficult times, our feelings, our thoughts, and our actions don't line up with that. God is on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. It's like one person said, you know, you give thanks in everything. You don't give thanks for the thing that's causing the pain. You just give thanks because God is in control. He knows what's best for you. He is good all the time. He has a plan for your life. And what he wants us to do is to get before him and say, Lord, what is your plan? Not how this pain can be taken away, but what is your plan for my life? It's like seek the kingdom of God first in his righteousness, and all these other things will be added on. No one can take you out of God's will except yourself. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. I don't know where that corner is, but
But I think sometimes we impede ourselves getting to that corner where the glory is. God knows. But if we understand that he's in control, if we're right before him, and our prayers are effective, we're listening to what he's saying, we're not being stubborn about his discipline. The Israelites were stubborn about his discipline, and all of them, basically, except two, didn't go into the promised land. Proverbs 29 says that after much reproof, a man's neck can become hard, and then it's broken beyond remedy. There is a fear of God in this situation. The older you get, the more you realize that life is going by pretty fast, and there is a day that will be before his judgment seat, and the grief that you're going to have is not because your life was tough. It's the grief and the tears that are going to be wiped away is because you blew it in terms of being disobedient to the Lord. But Oswald Chambers says this, that if you deal with your sin now, if you ask God to examine your heart, then when you're before the judgment seat of Christ, it will be a delight to see what Jesus Christ has done in your life instead of being tearful and grieved because we weren't obedient now. Rick Joyner, in his vision when he was before the judgment seat, said that the grief that you experience there is worse by far than any grief you'll ever experience on earth. But it doesn't have to be. It can be a delight because you were obedient to see what Jesus Christ has done in each of your lives. Glory is just around the corner. The sifting will bring forth the best in us. Jesus Christ. The sieve, the sieving, uh, that thing that separates the coarse stuff from the good stuff. You'll get rid of the junk, and what will remain is not the Esau syndrome, that is what we think is good, but what is God's best. God's heart for each of us is to have the best. He has a purpose for your life, and he wants it to be accomplished. If we walk by faith, if we trust in the Lord, it will be done. It will be done. You pray it. If you've been praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, then it will. If your heart says, Lord, let your will be done, it will be done. He'll grant the grace. He'll grant the strength. He's there. He's with us. The Holy Spirit is in us, and he wants the best for you and me. Thy kingdom come. Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I thank you that you are good all the time, that our times are in your hand. Forgive us, Lord God, when we have taken ourselves out of your hand. Lord, it is true that you are in control, that you are the creator of the universe, and no man can take any one of us out of your hand, out of your will, except ourselves. Lord, let that not happen. Grant us the grace and the trust that we need to believe, O Lord God, the trust in you, knowing that you have our best interest in your heart, that you carry each one of us in your heart as a father. God, let us not be the same. Let us not be moved by circumstances, but Lord, only be moved by your word and your love for us. 
Let Jesus Christ be glorified in our lives and let the word be magnified. Lord, I pray a blessing on each person here that they would become more and more and more by your grace and your spirit and your word like Jesus Christ, who never ever had justice in a sense until he's on, now, now that he's seated at, at the uh, uh, right hand of uh, the throne of God. He suffered for our sake. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. And if anybody experienced injustice, he did. But because of what he did, we have the spirit and the power and the word to be overcomers. And Lord, I pray for each person here that we be overcomers. That your name, again, Lord, would be glorified in our lives. Lord, let the word be alive in our hearts this week. Let us not simply be hearers, but let us be doers. Thank you, Father, for this moment and this time. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a good day.